Welcome to the Artistic Finance Podcast, where we break down the wall between art and money. If you're here looking for how to be an artist and financially sustain a career, you're in the right place. Keep listening and join us as we learn about artists and how they make money work for them. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Ethan Steimel, back for episode two. If you're listening, that means you found some value in our first episode and have decided to stick with us. Thank you very much. Please take some time and leave a rating and review so that other people can find us. Now what you are really here for, our guest, actor Chuck Cooper. His voice is as commanding as his onstage presence. Last summer in New York's Central Park, he played Leonato in Much Ado About Nothing, and that show was also filmed for great performances on PBS. He has also played other Shakespearean roles, like the title role in Othello, Brutus in Julius Caesar, and Caliban in The Tempest. On television, he has guest starred in House of Cards, Madam Secretary, Nurse Jackie, and Gossip Girl. But he is probably best known for his musical theater roles regionally and on Broadway. Amen Corner was his first Broadway show back in 1983, and he has since been in 16 Broadway shows, including Carolyn or Change, Finian's Rainbow, and Amazing Grace. For his portrayal of the pimp Memphis in The Life, he won the Tony Award for Best Featured Actor in a Musical. Without further ado, let's get to our interview. Welcome, Chuck Cooper, to the podcast. You're the second guest ever. You're really, I mean, too good. I'm sort of amazed. Well, from my perspective, you're, you're, you're scraping the bottom of the barrel, dude. <laughs> <laughs> My two first guests have had Tony Awards. I would say you're not, not the bottom of the barrel. Oh, okay. <laughs> For context, I just want to say that we're recording this on April 28, 2020, which is in the middle of the coronavirus, the COVID-19 shutdown people of the future, this is the stage where everybody's starting to have to cut their own hair. So I don't know, have you gotten there yet? Have you cut your own hair? I, I have actually, I've not gotten there yet, but I've actually contemplated, I have a pair of clippers, and I'm, I'm really contemplating going out on the on the deck and like mowing my hair down so that all the hair just, just goes off into the yard. My wife wanted me to cut my hair this weekend. I was like, no, I, you know, I want to see Chuck first, and then I can cut my hair after. I don't want it to look like a disaster. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> Chuck, I gave you an intro already. Could you give us a two-minute recap of where you started and how you got to where you are in your current career? The theater was always something that was in my family. My father actually was an actor in community theater. I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, and he was he acted in a community theater there called Karamu House, which was a settlement house, and they had a community theater, and they, they did various productions, and... Uh, I would go to the theaters very, I mean, I, I, I often say I grew up in the theater because uh, my nursery school was also in this settlement house. So I went to nursery school there and I saw my father act in shows there. Uh, first show I remember seeing was an uh, um, all-black production of Oklahoma. <laughs> Uh, and so the theaters, uh, it's always been in my life, and, but uh, I never pursued it until I went away to college. In high school, I sung in a choir. I kind of knew I could sing. 
then when I went away to college, uh, my freshman orientation advisor was a professor in the School of Theater, and they, you know, they you fill out the form about what your interests were and what you did in high school, and he suggested that I try the School of Theater, you know, the freshman 101. That ought to be fun. That'll be some easy credits. <laughs> So, not time-consuming at all. No, not at all. Um, so I, I tried it, met with some success, just kind of stayed on that track. I basically kept going, uh, knocking my head on the wall where the wall was soft. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's kind of how I, I, I did it. I went through the Ohio University um, program. It was a conservatory in my sophomore year I had to audition to to keep going because there was a big weeding out. I made it through that, graduated by the skin of my teeth. (laughs) Theater history was a big block. The math was was a big problem. They finally cobbled together enough credits so that I could get a, I believe my degree is a Bachelor of Arts. I was supposed to be a Bachelor of Fine Arts, but I only made Bachelor of Arts. I don't understand what the distinction is, but nevertheless, that's, that's what I graduated with. And then I moved to New York. My first week in New York, an upperclassman recommended me for uh, to do a narration of, of a dance slash puppet show that she was doing, non-equity. I got that job. Then another upperclassman recommended me for a, an audition for um, Theater Works USA. At that point, it was called Performing Arts Repertory Theater. And um, I got my first professional equity job uh, all in the first week. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty, it was like, it was, you know, I, I tell that story and people get really pissed at me because, you know, I got my equity card in, in a week. I, you know, I originally went there and said, okay, I'm going to give myself five years to get my equity card. I got it in like five days. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. It is. And uh, I went out on the road and with that, uh, I think that show, that was uh, Young Mark Twain. And I played some slave name, I don't know, Jim. That sounds like a good slave name. You know, we toured around, you know, uh, about eight actors in a big van. And we had to carry the set, the costumes. And, I, you know, you know, we didn't make any money, but I was able to pay my rent. And so I did that job. And then uh, I think I did another part tour and then maybe I probably got a regional theater gig and you know little crumbs and little things just uh, kept leading one thing led to another you know and I, I and I would definitely say that the early part of my career and even later into my career oftentimes it was uh a connection, personal connection between me and someone that that led to the next job or led to the next step to uh, move me along. It's who you know, not what you know. From when you moved, because you've done a number of Broadway shows, that's how I know you. Sixteen. Sixteen. <laughs> so how long from when you, you first got to New York to when you got your first Broadway show? So I moved to New York in uh, the bicentennial year, 1976. And my first Broadway show was Amen Corner, which was the musical version of James Baldwin's Amen Corner. I, I can't tell you what year that was. It was 80s, early 80s, mid 80s, somewhere in there. Within your five years, maybe? Well, no, I guess a little after your five years to get your equity card. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a little after. Well, and then the other thing, I know you as a, an actor, not as a singer. 
even though clearly you sing quite a bit. (laughs) 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 But I was in the lighting department on the show Choir Boy, which was a year ago now. You played sort of like headmaster, the very serious role. And you, you were nominated for a drama desk for that as well. And then last summer, PBS filmed Much Ado About Nothing in Central Park. I was in that lighting department. And so I saw you as that role. So I, you know, to me, you're like this Shakespearean actor, (laughs) just because I happen to have never seen, you know, like I didn't see Amazing Great. And I assume you sang in that. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, oddly enough, uh, the first incarnation of Choir Boy, I, I had a song in that version, but that song got cut because it was like a little weird for, for the headmaster to bust out singing all of a sudden, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah, because that's a very serious, the, the subject matter is pretty serious, and your role has all the awkward conversations with students. So I can, yeah, I can definitely yeah. see. Yeah. Um, and Peter Kazarowski, who did the lighting for it, and he was, he was the first guest on our podcast. Um, um. He did that version, but I wasn't working uh-huh. Uh-huh. with him at the time. So I only did the second version. Uh-huh. Oh, and then he, this is totally a side note, but my wife, Nicole, and I, we were watching, because of coronavirus, we're watching a little more Netflix than we could <laughs> or should, normally would. <laughs> and last week we were watching Gossip Girl, and you showed up on the screen. <laughs> oh, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Which is so funny to me because like, I know you as like this Shakespearean actor and then watching Gossip Girl, which is so not, not that. I mean, it has complications <laughs> that Shakespeare maybe would have written. <laughs> ever, ever so fluff. <laughs> I mean, you, the, the fluff of fluff. <laughs> I know. Because I, I told Nicole, I was like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interview Joe Cooper. You know, I'm thinking this great actor. <laughs> and she's like, oh, the guy from Gossip Girl. <laughs> oh, man, that's funny. So, okay, so now just some fun questions so that we sort of get to know, like, your personality as an artist-ish sort of thing. What is your favorite theater show to go see as an audience member? One of the first Broadway shows I saw was um, Rocky Horror Picture Show. Uh, I love that show. That show was, I, I, I remember sitting there going, whoa, they are having a ball up there. I love that. And then I saw the flip, the antithesis of that. I saw Maggie Smith do Private Lives. And I thought, wow, what an actress, man. Uh, And then I saw um, Zoe Caldwell do Medea. That was awesome. Uh, And then there was, uh, I remember seeing my first August Wilson play, which was Fences. I saw James Earl Jones do Troy Maxson in Fences. And that was truly a seminal moment in the theater for me. That was revelatory. I was like, oh my God, I know this guy. I know I've I've heard these that music before. I I, I know this in, in such a really intimate, deep place. And so uh that 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 started my love of August Wilson. Okay, well you have quite a wide range there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay. Do do you have uh, a favorite piece of art? It's hard. It's hard to to pick just one. I love Ramar Bearden. I love um, Picasso. Uh, that Guernica just blows me away. I just he, he really got it. <laughs> you know, you look at that picture and you go, okay, that's war. That's that's horror. You know, I like Van Gogh. Who doesn't, right? You're right, right, right. <laughs> you know, Starry Starry Night. It's just. It's just glorious. Um, so it's really an unfair question because it's like there's just such a vast array. Yeah. I don't know how much uh, 
reading you do, but do you have a favorite art book, like an acting book or an um, inspiration book, something like that? My favorite, I, I, I am not a great reader. I am uh, re- I, I'm dyslectic and it's really, really difficult for me to read. But that said, uh, there's a book that I, I often go to, um, and that is uh, the Tao the Te Ching. And I, I like the Stephen Mitchell translation. It's actually one of the oldest books ever written. It, I think it predates the Bible, actually. It was written by a man named Lao Tzu. It predates Confucianism. It's, um, it's a philosophy. The Tao Te Ching basically translates to the Book of the Way. The first half of it is about how to be in the world, and the second half is about how to be a leader in the world. I think really old stories are just very fascinating. I gr- I grew up in a house that was like the Bible is the oldest book. Uh-huh. You know, it was there at the beginning sort of situation. Yeah. So I always love finding books that are older than that. <laughs> That, you know, just to sort of be like, well... (laughs) The truth is uh, no one's got a monopoly on the truth. The thing I like about the Tao Te Ching is that it's in short little verses. They're almost like little poems. And they're they're very short. They're often very paradoxical. When I first read it, it made no sense to me. Every time I've gone back to it, it has uh, revealed things to me. I think the, the, the journey of a thousand miles starts with one step, comes from the Tao Te Ching. Um, and I was going to ask, I had a question, which is, where do you draw an inspiration or where do you go to pull inspiration? But maybe that's, maybe that's it for you. That's part of it. But my greatest inspiration is nature. I, we, we now live on, on a lake up in West Milford, New Jersey, and I go fi- As a matter of fact, as soon as we finish, I'm going fishing. <laughs> <laughs> That's very Midwestern. Wait, does Ohio count as the Midwest? Oh, yeah, definitely. Very Midwestern, very Midwestern. I grew up, I, I don't remember not fishing. Well, okay, so I'm from Missouri, ah. and I'm not sportsly at, at all, uh-huh. but ev- even I have been fishing more than once. <laughs> <laughs> Did you like it? Like you're saying, I like sitting in nature and doing nothing. In that sense, I like fishing. Actually throwing a pole out there and, and I actually more like with a net to get messy or whatever. But what do I do with a fish? Like, I'm not going to eat this thing. <laughs> <laughs> so question two is, what music do you listen to? Uh, jazz and blues. Every now and then I'll listen to some new age stuff, a very little bit. I, I cannot abide rap. I've, I've tried and I just, I can't. And you know what I, I've, I've started to listen to now is contemporary, contemporary country music. What I, I've discovered is that they have expropriated or borrowed black musical vocabulary into country music. And it's really cool now. It's like, I, I kind of like it. I absolutely love that you just said that because I love country music. There's a lot about it that I don't necessarily like. Uh-huh. Nowadays, like um, Casey Musgraves as an example, but there's a lot of progressive things going on. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And there and there's like rap mixing with country. Oh, yeah. The musical palette has, has stretched out. Uh, I have a little man cave out back and, you know, country music is often blaring out of there. You, you think it was some redneck living up in there. <laughs> That's so funny because I'm always afraid in theater if I say, oh, I love country music, people just look at you like, what is wrong with you? That's trash. That's so rude. That's so behind the times. And I understand what 
what yeah. they, they understand because what they understand of it is like what, what it, it was was yeah. for a time but they haven't listened to anything new or they haven't found yeah. those artists yeah. that are actually good and then the, the terrible thing i find about music is that you can have a good tune that has not good lyrics or is not a good artist or something uh-huh. and then it, it's confusing to me because it's like well the tune's really nice i really like it but it is talking about terrible things. Right. Um, I'm sitting in a bar and then she came in and you know. <laughs> I'll go jogging and I go from 23rd Street down to the Brooklyn Bridge and, and back. Wow. And it can take me an hour because I'm not a fast runner. Sometimes I'll listen to country music and I play a game. How many songs will play until I hear a woman? Uh, the last time I did it, I got 22 songs wow. that were men. And I, I think white men. Wow. And it was just like, come on. They, they, they have a problem there. They have a problem there. But I will say that the women, it's the female country artists that that drew me in. They they are saying some fabulous stuff. I mean, they are really, uh, th- their stuff is w- much stronger than anything else. And there there's some there's some black folks now. You know, Charlie Pride is not the only country music guy anymore. It's it's really it's kind of cool. I agree. Okay, we touched on fishing. Do you have any other hobbies that you like to do? Just fishing. I've I, I tie my own flies now because it's so much fun to tie a fly and then go fishing and catch a fish on a jig that you tied. Wow, I I'm expecting that no one else is going to have fishing as a hobby on this podcast. I'm just guessing. <laughs> You might be right about that. Okay, so that's that's you as a creative person. Now we're going to get to your financial personality, which, by the way, when you agreed to talk to me, you said, I'm not great with money. I hate money. I'm going to serve as a cautionary tale. I'm the bane of my wife's existence <laughs> because she is really good with money. I mean, she's, I, I call her a market maven. I mean, she can, uh, she can stretch a dollar till it hollers. But I, I am very, uh, oh, I have a dollar. Well, let me go buy that. <laughs> I want to touch on your demographics. And I think these things are all important. Could you describe your demographics? Okay, I am an African-American. I am 65 years old. I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. I went to Ohio University and graduated with a bachelor degree. And when you moved to New York, what did your finances look like? I moved to New York with $260 in my pocket and a suitcase. Which, to give perspective, what you had was about one month's rent. Yeah, because my, my rent was, was, was 250 I had a roommate, so I, I, I paid half of that. I shared a, a one-bedroom apartment with a, a young lady that I went to college with. It was a five-floor walk-up up in the 80s. Are you a saver or a spender? I'm a spender. <laughs> I don't save anything. In my later years here, started to save a bit. And I've also started to to give a bit. There's an organization in uh, India that helps uh, with trafficking of young girls that I, I give to regularly. There's uh, the ACLU I give to regularly. PBS I give to regularly. I try to save a little bit, but, you know, probably not as much as I should. <laughs> So then, Philip, are you risk averse or a risk taker? I'm a total risk taker. I don't think I could have survived. Being in show business is a huge risk. Especially being an actor, being a being a black actor is a huge risk. Every time you go into an audition, it's a risk. You can't be risk adverse and be successful. And then you know, even after you get a job, you have to risk a choice. You have to make a strong choice and commit strongly to it. And it's a, it's a risk because it may suck. 
<laughs> I, I tell young actors, though, you know, when you, when you fall on your face, that's not necessarily a bad thing because you can look at why that happened. And generally speaking, there's something to learn from that. You need to know what you can't do because you can't do everything. You know, I don't dance. I'm, I'm not going to any more dance auditions because I can't do that. <laughs> Were you taught about finance? Did you have good examples of people with money? I had good and bad examples. My grandmother was a great example. Back in the 50s, they uh, bought a house right next to Shaker Heights in Cleveland, which was a big deal for black folks to own a house anywhere near Shaker Heights, because Shaker Heights is like one of the richest suburbs in the country. Uh, It's where all the rich white folks in Cleveland live. And then she bought a summer cabin in Idlewild, Michigan. Idlewild, Michigan is a resort area for blacks. Are you familiar with the, the Green Book? The Green Book is this book that black people had that would um, tell you if you were driving in the country, especially through the South, but even through the Midwest, where it was safe, where you could get lodging, where you could get gas, where you could, you know, Idlewild, Michigan was a, was a big thing in the Green Book. And so my grandmother bought a cabin there and stayed in the family for many years. And she was great with money. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, my father, he was a party guy. <laughs> He's just, you know, when he got, when he, when he got some money, we lived. Go to restaurants, go, you know, he worked for United Airlines. He could fly for free. So, I mean, sometimes my father would pick me up and we would fly to Boston and have eat lobster and fly back. Same day. Wow. Kind of live like him. I know you're supposed to save for a rainy day. I know all, all that. But I also tend to think, you know what? I could be dead tomorrow. So I'm going to live today. <laughs> Which, as I said before, drives my wife crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm in big trouble because, because like I'm, I'm basically retired now. I, I, I got my, uh, my pensions at the first of the year. I got three pensions. Who knew I actually did well over the course of my career? And my, my, my pensions aren't bad. You know, I mean, they pay all our bills. So I do a little shopping on the Amazon, and the packages show up. And she, you know, I, 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 she, I open the door. She goes, you got another package from Amazon. <laughs> I try to keep an eye out for the Amazon truck so I can intercept the package and get it in the man cave before she sees me. That's hilarious. In your formative years, what was the political landscape, and did that influence how you deal with money? The political landscape. Well, you know, we are and always have been Democrats because, uh, like, what other choice is there for us? <laughs> <laughs> And so our fortunes, uh, you know, rose and fell uh, on on the progressive platform, such as it was or was not. You know, we were often disappointed, but, you know, that was the only game in town. Okay. Um, And then throughout your life, have you had, had any health challenges that sort of affected anything? Healthy as a horse. Two years ago, I had my right knee, I had a knee replacement because, you know, I'm getting old and arth- arthritis had gotten kind of bad. I was supposed to get the other one done, but after realizing what was entailed, I think I'll just uh, ride this one out. <laughs> On a daily basis, do you worry about money or do you just never even think about money, really? Now that I've got my pigeons, I never think about it. My checkbook and my savings account have commas in them. They never had commas in them before. <laughs> 
But you know, I when I certainly when I uh, you know years ago, you know, trying to raise three kids and being an actor and you know, oh my God, money was oof, thought about it a lot. You know, uh, my first wife tried to get me to quit because uh, I wasn't paying the bills. I wasn't. It wasn't happening. It was feast and famine. You know, I'd, I'd do okay, and then I would not do okay. Then I would do okay, and then I would not do okay. I don't know if it was stubbornness. I don't know if it was craziness. But I just always knew that I, I couldn't do a 9-to-5 job. The few 9-to-5 jobs that I ever had, I got fired from. <laughs> or or I just got so fed up I would quit because I just couldn't. I can't. I just I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. The carrot was just just so close. I could, you know, sometimes I'd get a bite of it. I just kept hanging in there. When this, uh, she was encouraging you to quit, was that when you had already had a number of Broadway shows? Oh, um, I may have had one or two. Actually, the bulk of my success came after I got divorced. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I did I did wonder that because you said, let me serve as a cautionary tale about money, but you also raised three kids, so couldn't have been that bad, right? I raised three kids. They they are alive. They, they survived being my children. <laughs> they, none of them are in jail, um, you know, but... Uh, you know, it, it, it was rough. You know, there's many times that uh, I was like, no, you can't go to camp. I, or no, you can't have this lesson. Or no, you can't do this. Or no, 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 because I don't have enough money. That said, two of the three of them are actors. My daughter just got a Tommy nom- nomination last, last season. And, and they still talk to me. I mean, occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> Was that Tony nomination for Tootsie? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The best parts of that show were your daughter and the comic relief. When I think back a year later, that's what I remember. And I remember watching it thinking, I wish your daughter's character had another song or had a little more development. Because I thought, this is what people want to see, I think. In the telling of that story, that character needs a, an 11 o'clock number, which they didn't have. That happened to her in SpongeBob, too, you know. But nevertheless, she, she's going to be fine. She's going to do okay. Whenever you have excess money, which I guess would be now, where do you put it? Uh, we're going to be saving for travel. We, that's our thing. There is absolutely no no material thing that I don't already have. I buy a couple lures because it's fun. You know, it's, it's my little little toy. But I, I don't need shit. I could outfit three or four people to go fishing for the rest of their lives. <laughs> you know, it's basically travel. Uh, travel is the is the is the best. It's the best. It's just the best. I love it. I think it. traveling is the best thing. Okay. Um, so throughout your career, did you use budgets? No way. A, a budget? What the hell is that? That is a ludicrous concept to me. It seems to me like for a budget, you need regular influxes of cash. Well, I never had regular influxes of cash. I would either have no cash, the bills would mount up, and then when I got cash, I would pay the bills, get caught up, and just about the time that I got caught up, I would run out of cash. So <laughs> that that was the cycle. I stopped using credit cards. I just adopted the if I don't pay you, you can wait. <laughs> and if you can't wait, 
I, I didn't know what to tell you. <laughs> I'll pay you when I can. <laughs> Amazing. Like if you Google how to be good with money, one of the you know first five pieces of advice is make a budget. As an artist or working in the theater, how do you do that? You know, you go to a budget calculator. Okay, put in your income. It's like, well, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. Like, I know what I hope, but you know, one, one month it may be zero and the next month it may be three grand. I don't know. But this is interesting because you're sort of like the opposite of Peter, who was our previous guest, because he was like, oh, budgets. Absolutely. I've always had a budget, always known everything. A lighting designer with a budget. <laughs> well, God bless him. I don't, I don't know how, to, how you do that. I couldn't do that today. Oh, I could probably do it today. Now that I have a regular income, I could probably do it. But why bother? <laughs> okay. What was the best financial decision you ever made? That would be marrying my current wife. <laughs> Because she is amazing. I mean, we have this gorgeous little cabin on a lake. We have an apartment in West North Bergen. We have a brand new car. And we have all those things because she is a saver. She saves every dime she makes. She has a budget. She puts stuff away. She's got 115 401ks and investments and la la la. She's got all this shit. And she's done that. As a as a playwright and uh, and and teaching in a couple of different universities, she squirreled it away. She, in teaming with her, we've been able to buy this real estate and get to a very very comfortable place. She's the boss, and I often say to her, "That's how you want it. That's how it's going to be," because <laughs> she knows. <laughs> I surrendered to the goddess. That was the best financial decision of your life. How old were you when you married her? Because to me, it sounds like that was, a, that was not early on in your We've life. We've been together maybe 20 years, something like that. So, that, so you would have been uh, like, four, wait, you see, uh, like 45-ish? So that's not so. So you went 45 years and then made the best financial decision of your life. Yep. <laughs> Feast and famine. Feast and famine. What was the worst financial decision you ever made and how did that impact you? That would be marrying my first wife. <laughs> <laughs> I, might, I might have to edit this out. I don't want to get sued, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. You better, you better edit that out. Edit that out because I don't want my children to ever hear that. I, I try never to say anything bad about their mother. All right. Well, maybe we'll just skip that question. <laughs> okay. And this next one we could probably skip, I think, because like an actor, you're sort of like a business in of yourself. Did you form an LLC or a corporation or were you just always, whenever you get a check, it's to Chuck Cooper, the actor? I, I never did that. Uh, I A couple of times... Uh, like just recently when the tax law changed and maybe uh, another time, like a couple of years prior to that, I talked to an accountant and asked if I should do that, but I just never made enough money. They said I, I, I just didn't make enough money to make that worthwhile. Okay. Throughout your career, have you mostly been paid on W-2s or 1099s? Mostly on W-2s. In the last couple of years, I've had a lot of 1099 stuff because people ask me to do concerts uh, or do guest uh, artist things, and then they and those usually pay on 1099s. So um, the bulk of my career was was salaried work. Okay, and with all these 1099s, do you pay quarterly taxes, or do you just wait till the end of the uh, year? We pay quarterly because my wife 
gets a lot of 1099 income. Um, almost all of her income is 1099. Do you file your own taxes? Uh, we have an accountant. I've, I've actually had an accountant for years because I can't do that shit. I'm fairly good at keeping my receipts and, and all of that stuff together so that I can hand it over to someone to do. Our, our taxes are very complicated because, you know, if you work out of state and then, you know, you got 1099 and W-2 and it's like, ah. I mean, now they have TurboTax, but I have just never done my taxes for the exact same reasons you're saying is you work in five different states and it's like, oh, my goodness. You know, and everybody says, yeah, TurboTax will do it for you, you know, pay 80 bucks. But it's like, to me, I'm like, if I answer one question wrong, then everything's going to be wrong. Yeah, the TurboTax thing, I I never tried that. I never did it. Do you invest? And if you do invest, uh, how do you do it? Stocks, bonds, alternative things? I have a 401k that equity gave me, basically. Whenever I work, I give a portion of that to the 401k. That is the only investment that I had. At one point, I bought a mutual fund. You know, I, I was, you know, I was like maybe doing a show or something and I put money into it. And then, you know, I hit a, a rough patch and I cashed it in. So, yeah. So the only thing I have is my pensions and a 401k. Okay. There's something called the 80-20 rule. It says that like 80% of your money is going to come from 20% of the work you do. And then 20% of your money is going to come from 80% of the work you do. Have you found that in your career at all? The theater would be where you don't make any money and you work your ass off. Television is where you hardly do any work at all and the money is incredible. I mean, like, I, I just I just finished doing um, five episodes of a new series for Apple TV and I made a hundred grand or something like that. I mean, a, a ridiculous amount of money. And all I did was they would send a car, I'd get in the car, I'd go there. They, you know, have eight people throwing clothes on me and and whatnot. I'd get on the set and I'd, you know, say two lines and I'd get back in the car and go home. I mean, it was ridiculous. It was like crazy. I could so get used to that. So everybody should just be a television actor instead of a theater actor. If you want to make money. The the thing about the theater, though, is uh, I often tell people the theater pays what I call karmic currency. And karmic currency is when some young person comes up to me and says, oh, I saw Carolina change and it changed my life. When I saw that show, I knew I wanted to be an actor. I knew I wanted to be in the theater. I knew I wanted to, to do this. What's that worth? How much money is that worth? That's some other kind of currency. I call it karmic currency. How important has your personal support system been? It's vital. You have to surround yourself with artists of at, at least of your caliber, but preferably higher. As long as you're, you're reaching to get over a higher bar, you're going to be doing okay. If you don't have that support or if you're around a bunch of folks that don't have any talent, you're not going to expand or grow as an artist. I mean, I'm at once a person who is very comfortable being alone and being solitary, but I also truly love the the friendships and and collaborations that I've made over the years with people. Like I, I you know, working with Ruben, working with uh, Kenny Leon or, or Jack, any any of those guys that I've worked with, Cy Coleman or Sondheim or you know, I have gotten to work with the best in the business, and that has stretched me. That has made me bring my highest self to the room. How much of your success in your career has been because you worked hard and how much of it was just luck? I'm going to say that 99% of it was luck. 
1% of it was knowing if I get a toe into the room, I fucking better bring it. Because uh, opportunity is not a lengthy visitor. I, I try very, 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 very hard to be extremely present when I'm in the room. Because uh, not, not many are called, and when you are called, there, there's an expectation there, and you would do well to meet it, if not exceed it. <laughs> what is your financial goal for the year, if you have one? My financial goal for the year is to maybe not go to Amazon too much. <laughs> <laughs> Chill out on my Amazon visits and my visit to Tackle Warehouse, which I love. <laughs> Save up for our next nice trip, which we have to decide where we're going we want to go to we we haven't gone very far east. We went to China once, but I really want I want to go to on a food tour to Vietnam or Japan, something like that. Saving saving for travel. We want to we want to take two nice trips a year. Sounds fantastic. And maybe this is the same thing, but do you have any personal uh, personal goal for this year? I want to catch my personal best bass. I want to catch a five pound bass in this lake. I've not caught a five pounder yet. I should probably lose some weight. I don't know if that's going to happen. Because <laughs> I really like food, man. I just love food. <laughs> Fair. I, I think I could help you, not with the, the weight loss goal, but this catching a five-pound bass, I think if you went to a hatchery and bought a couple and then took them to your lake and threw them in, that would, your odds of catching one might go up. That's very true. That's very true. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> okay. Um, what financial advice would you give yourself back when you started and or what advice would you give to actors who are starting right now? I tell them, get out of the business. No. <laughs> Don't be an actor. <laughs> if I can say that and it has any effect on you, you should not have been an actor in the first place. I don't know that it's financial advice as much as it is believe in yourself and believe in the value of your gift because no one else will give it the value that you give it. And you must maintain the understanding that what you have to offer the world in your artistic gift is of value and that only you can give it. There's only one Chuck Cooper. Nobody else can do Chuck Cooper but me. Apparently, that has had some value. My wife, Nicole, is a non-theater person, so these are questions that she wanted me to ask. A majority of theater artists have no savings or retirement savings. <laughs> Why is that? Because we don't make no money. I know. I don't even need to ask that question. <laughs> you, One would have to make some money in order to save some money. <laughs> How will COVID-19 affect the future of theater? That's a good question. That's one we're all waiting to see. What, what the Tao Te Ching teaches is that nothing is all one thing except everything. There's a lot in that statement. COVID-19, while it has much pain and suffering, there's also something significant going on. This is the first time that the world has had a common enemy. This is the first time that we have been united in our vulnerability and our desire to defeat an invisible enemy. This is also the first time that the earth has been on pause. We've noticed that now people can see the San Bernardino Mountains in Los Angeles. Now people in India can see the Himalayas because the pollution's gone. Scientists have actually said that the seismic 
graphic readings that they take of the earth have calmed down. There's something happening in this pause is good. And so the pause that is happening in the theater is a time for artists to reflect and perhaps regenerate and recommit to what it is we do and the importance of it and the stories that we choose to tell. It's my hope that out of COVID comes maybe a rebirth, a regeneration of energy and commitment and focus and desire to do that thing that only the theater can do. Right now, we're, we're worried about, oh, God, you know, Broadway, there's no Broadway. I can't, this looks at the end of the, the day the earth stood still. Well, you know, there's an opportunity there, great opportunity there, I think. I think we will seize it. Would you be afraid of going back to work, like on a, on a live show? Let's see what you know. Let's see what happens. You know, first of all, there there's so much science that is yet to be done. You know about who's contagious, who, how long are you contagious, when are you contagious? All these things are still variables. You know, so we're gonna have to wait and see on that. Is it a good idea for people to go into the arts now? to study or start a career. Always, of course. You know, th this is in our DNA. There's no way that we can not have it. It would be like not having breathing. Time immemorial, people have gathered around the fire and somebody gets up and tells the story of how they threw the spear and hit the antelope. And we all sat there spellbound. We have to have it. What form we have it has changed. We had Greek theater, then we had Comedian, and we had different permutations of it. We will come up with something else. You know, there will be the whatever theater is after COVID. People have been drawing on caves for millions of years. I mean, it, it's, it's, you can't not have it. New York has been the place for Broadway, for theater. Starting out, a lot of those actors have to have a day job. With the state of the economy right now, where a lot of those day jobs aren't available, is New York a good place to go? We are having a huge reset. I don't know whether New York will still be the epicenter. It's very possible that it may not. I don't know what to, to say on that one, other than beat your head on the wall where the wall is soft. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Are you in unions? Which ones and pros and cons of being in the union? I am in three unions. I'm in uh, equity, SAG, and AFTRA. And there are only pros. There are no cons. It's always better to be represented by a group than to be represented by yourself. Capitalism is such that if you are by yourself, the capitalists will usurp you. That's just how it's set up. That's just the way the game is played. And so it's better to be in a group and have some collective bargaining power than to be by yourself. Yeah, join a union. Actors' Equity, I know, and SAG, Screen Actors Guild. What is AFTRA? AFTRA, uh, American Federation of Television and Radio Artists. Actually, SAG and AFTRA are now one union. It's SAG slash AFTRA. It used to be uh, SAG was for film and AFTRA was for television and radio. Since everything is digital now, all those mediums are, are all digital. It's all one union now. Okay, so the final couple questions. What separates those like yourself that have had a successful career in theater versus those that stop or maybe never even get started? What separates us from them, as it were, is that we never quit. Quitting was not 
in the realm of possibility. Quitting was just not an option. And when quitting is not an option, then you can only succeed. Last question. Where can people find out more about you? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Why would they want to? <laughs> <laughs> Is Google the best place to go? Uh, Google, yeah. Google um, IMDB, I guess. I'm on that. Um, Broadway World. You also have a website. Oh, yeah. I have a website. I, I, I haven't updated it in, like, forever. But, yeah, I have a website, chuckcooper.net. You don't, you don't have a Twitter? You're not tweeting every day? I don't tweet. I don't, I don't tweet. I Facebook. You know what? Look at my, my Facebook feed. That's a real good way to find out about me because it, it, face, Facebook is my face. Okay. Well, Chuck Cooper, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure to have you. Oh, it's my great pleasure to talk to you. That was our interview with Tony Award winner Chuck Cooper, a fantastic person with an amazing career and somebody who loves to laugh. My takeaways for financial advice were work hard and be present. If you aren't great with money, get work via a union and or listen to others who can encourage you to be disciplined. And also, he didn't say this, but laugh a lot. It's infectious and I can understand what draws people to Chuck. That's it for today. Join us next week for our interview with television writer Jill Twiss. She is incredibly intelligent. Listening to her will make you smarter. Until next time, break a leg. Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance. Find more information on our website, artisticfinance.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and please leave a review so others can find us. Artistic Finance is produced in New York City by Ethan and Nicole Steimel. Producing consultant Anne Nigrin Doherty. Graphics and website by Josh Cutler. Music by Chang Liu.